I think. Good morning. There we go. Now we're alive and cooking. I need a place to put a Bible down every once in a while. So uh, This morning as I was working on this table, I had a person tell me that they would not be able to pay attention to the sermon without the stool that used to sit here. And I was reminded starkly of just how Presbyterian of a church we can be, stuck in our traditions. Amen? Every once in a while, I like to do something just to throw people off in the best possible way. Uh, well, I, um, I don't know about you or if you've ever taken one of these, but one of the things that I really love um, is personality tests. And I'm not talking about like the, you know, what bubblegum flavor are you on Facebook or anything like that, but like actual valid psychological, like vetted personality tests. Um, I remember I've taken like dozens of these things, but when I was in, in seminary, I took the Myers-Briggs for the first time. Raise your hand if you've ever taken a Myers-Briggs test. There's a whole, wow, way more than I imagined, right? Um, raise your hand if you were surprised by the result of your Myers-Briggs test when you did take it. Wow, no hand went up. See, this is kind of a normal, well, a couple of hands, there you go, kind of a normal thing. I, I kind of knew what I was going to be, and I took the test and, you know, all the stuff, and it came back. And if you know me, I'm a pretty social butterfly. I really like people. And so it came back for me as an ISTJ. And the S and the T and the J, if you know what the Myers-Briggs is, makes perfect sense with who I am. I am the most like logical, thinking, judging, whatever, you know, person. But the I for introvert really shocked me. I said, you know, there's something something wrong with this test. I, I am not an introvert at all. Uh, I, I love to be with people. I, I, I'm energized. People are awesome. Uh, if I'm home alone too long, I'll, like, I'll go to a coffee shop to read or do work just so there's people. You know, every once in a while, I'll be in my office here working on a sermon, and I'll say, you know what? No, I'm going to go do that at a Panera because I like the buzz of people around me, you know, and I'll just change venues halfway through the day. I, there's no way that I'm an introvert. And so I, I retook the test, and it came back again <laughs> as an ISTJ. And so so I had some conversations with, uh, with a professor of, of the class. It was a pastoral leadership class. And he assured me, he goes, in fact, listen, you, you are probably introverted. Uh, here, here's what you don't understand. Um, you are probably a social introvert. Uh, and then it turned out, after I dug in with some, some folks, it turns out that I'm actually what they call a hypersocial introvert. And what that means is that I really love people. I like small groups of people. I like one-on-one -on -one groups of people. I like large groups of people. I love to be in crowds. One of my favorite times of the week is Sunday mornings, to just be with people. But being with people completely and utterly exhausts me as a person. And, and what recharges my batteries is being alone. And so I notice, like, when I come home on Sundays after church, I am more tired in that moment than I've ever been the entire week. But I, I don't feel like I want to go home and stop being with people. Like, my mind wants to just hang out with you guys all day. But when I get home, I'm like, man, I am exhausted. Hyper-social introvert. So this test that I took kind of taught me something about myself that I, I really didn't even know before, right? It kind of it allowed me to see myself in a, in a new light, and you learn kind of things about how you function, what makes you tick, and that helps you in leadership. So when I would get exhausted by being with people, I now understand. It's not that I don't like it. I'm built for this. And actually what I learned is more than half of all pastors on a global scale are actually social introverts. It's, it's a trait that more than the average pastor has. And so that's a helpful thing for me to know because it doesn't mean when I'm tired of being with you that I'm actually tired of being with you, right? It just means that I need to go find rest for my soul for a little bit before I can keep moving on. 
the Beatitudes that we've been looking at for the past few weeks and that we'll wrap up today, in some ways are like this kind of spiritual personality test for us. It's a litmus test that we can use to see, you know, how many of you wondered, well, how am I doing at this idea of being a Christian? And I don't mean this in a work righteousness kind of way, like I, I need to earn my salvation. If you're a follower of Christ, you've earned your salvation. God has justified you, not by anything of yours, but through grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. But we, we still measure kind of how are we doing as followers of Christ, right? How are we doing at growing into Christian maturity? How are we doing in our, in our faith and, and the Beatitudes serve as a litmus test for how we do that. So when it says, blessed are the meek, you can say, you know, how am I doing it being meek? Like, how am I really doing? How do I think I'm doing? And if I were to go home and ask every member of your family that lives in your house, how would they think you're doing? And do those things, in fact, line up, right? It's, it's an easy way with eight different statements to start to say, you know, how, how am I stacking up here? And so, in some ways, the Beatitudes, they can serve many purposes, and we'll recap some of them, but one of them is this litmus test of, of how are we doing. And so this week, we're going to look at the, the last four. If you recall, we started with week one of kind of looking at what the Beatitudes are and how they function and how they're about approval and authority and all those kinds of things. And then last week, we looked at the first four Beatitudes, and those primarily dealt with our, I think we got, I got to have it myself there. Those primarily dealt with kind of the, the vertical nature, like how we relate to God, right? Like the meekness, the, the poverty in spirit, and those kinds of things. The final four that we're looking at today primarily deal with the horizontal relationships we have. So they are how do we relate to other people around us, both Christians and non-Christians, and how do those people, both Christians and non-Christians, relate to us? And how do those things all kind of function together? And so I want to start today by just, again, standing as God's people, reading God's word. Let's go through Matthew 12, 1, or Matthew, sorry, Matthew 5, 1 through 12 together. Uh, we'll read it, and then we'll hash out the last couple ones, and we'll be done with the Beatitudes for a while. So here comes the word of the Lord. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here's today's. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. We covered the first four B's last week, and now we're looking at the last four B's. And the first one of them for today is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
It's a pretty neat kind of back and forth, right? The promise is the same as the command, right? Those who are merciful will be shown mercy by others. And so sometimes when we get into these kind of Christianese jargons, it's good to just have a, a 101 rehashing of what some of the terms mean, right? And so real quick, if, if this is new to you, uh, you probably have not been here very long. You've probably heard me say this before. But there's kind of three, three terms worth defining here. Number one, justice, biblically defined, is receiving exactly what is deserved. So justice means everyone gets exactly what they deserve coming to them. Good, bad, whatever. It's, it's not a matter of the good things received, right? So if you do wrong, the justices you have wrong done to you. Kind of there's an eye for an eye mentality there, right? That's why we have in Scripture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Justice means we get exactly what we deserve. Grace means that we receive that which we do not deserve. So to have grace bestowed upon us or to bestow grace upon others means that whoever is receiving the grace, there's goodness that they don't deserve to have, but we give it to them anyway, right? My son did not finish his dinner and an hour later asks for a dessert treat. And I decide, you know what? You were great all day. I'm going to give it to you anyway. You do not deserve this chocolate, but here it is, right? That's grace in parenting, right? You deserve to sit in your room for the rest of the night, but I'm going to come and talk to you and try to shape you a little bit, and then we're going to offer some grace, and you can come back downstairs, even though you don't deserve to come back downstairs. That's grace. Mercy is the opposite in some ways. Mercy is not receiving the bad, the negative, which we do deserve to receive, right? Like, you deserve a beating, but I don't give it to you. I'm not talking about parenting. This is just in life. <laughs> Sorry. I, br I broke away from the parent analogy, right? But it's the idea of there's, there's, there's something, you know, there's consequences to our actions. You deserve the, the negative impact of your negative choices, and that negative impact doesn't come towards you. It's withheld. You don't have to deal with the negative consequence of your negative choices and actions. That is mercy. And a lot of times we mix up grace and mercy. We use them interchangeably. And a lot of times when we pray, when I pray, we pray, we thank God for his grace and his mercy. But it's important to understand that grace is God giving us all the things that we don't deserve. Mercy is we all deserve to die. And somehow this morning you are sitting here alive. And I'm standing in front of you alive, right? Justice would be that we all just drop dead right now in our sins. That's justice. That would be actual justice. God's standard is perfection, keeping his word holy and blameless and perfectly. None of us do that. We all deserve to die. Justice means we die, right? God gives mercy to us. And so to be merciful means to hold back negative things from those in our lives who deserve them. Whether they deserve our anger or our punishment or our retribution, our scolding, our judgment, our cold shoulder, our passive aggression. Whatever it is that the people around us have earned through their actions, to be merciful means to withhold those things from them for their own good and benefit and out of love. That's what it means to be merciful. So when God said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, the key to understanding all of this is the first few Beatitudes that we've had, right? If you do Beatitude 1 through 4 well, you come to understand really, really quickly that you every day are walking in the mercy of God. Every single one of us in this room today is standing here or sitting here by the mercy 
of God. You don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve any of the goodness that is in your life. Any of the things that happen to you that are positively perceived by you. You do not deserve them. You have not earned them. As a matter of fact, what you deserve is to just drop dead on the spot. But the Lord preserves you. He keeps you. He shapes you. He molds you. He saves you. He redeems you. He gives you a new identity, a new clothing of righteousness. And so the mercy is born out of the mercy received. The mercy given is born out of the mercy received. And so for us as Christians, one of the highest acts of hypocrisy that we can commit in the world around us is to not bestow mercy on everyone that we encounter. There's a parable about that in Scripture, right? The parable of the unmerciful servant who is forgiven much and then turns around and puts a guy in jail over the dollar that he's owed after he's been forgiven like millions of dollars. Right? And the king comes back and deals with him harshly because he goes, look, you have been bestowed so much mercy, you can't even bestow an ounce of it to other people. But think about this. We have a tendency, a default mode, of not bestowing mercy that we get onto people around us. We like to hold people around us to a much higher standard than we like to hold ourselves. Right? And if you doubt this, just pay attention to when you drive in a car. How many of you have cut someone off in the last week? Come on. Really? If your hand's not up, you're not a driver. If you don't have a license, you can keep your hand down. But other than that, right? How many of you have honked at someone or been angry at someone who, when you're at a red light and it turns green, they don't go because maybe they're on their phone and it takes them a second, and so you, right? How many of you have been that person? Right? When you're that person who's being honked at, you're like, how dare they honk? Right? But when you're behind them, all of a sudden, you know in your heart that you are way better at getting mercy than you are at giving it. And I'm right there with you. I'm the, my, driving Vince is the worst hypocrite in the world. Ask my wife. I get mad at people on the road for doing stuff that I do all the time. But when it's me, it's okay, because I know what I'm doing. And they don't. And they should get out of my way. Our default position as God's people, covered under sin still, we have this sin in our life, and it stops us from being merciful. And God says, listen, no, no, no. In, in the kingdom of God, you have to understand, mercy has been received by you. You are to be my agents of mercy in the world around you. One of the, one of the primary ways that you as the people of God communicate the love of God to those who don't know him is through your acts of mercy. When you see people that deserve a certain thing and you say, no, I'm, I'm going to show mercy to them. I'm not going to look for retribution. I'm going to forgive when it doesn't make sense to forgive, when it's impossible to forgive, when it's so hard to forgive. I'm not going to use an eye for an eye as a mantra in my life. I'm going to let my eye be injured and I'm going to turn the other cheek. Right? That's what mercy is. And God's promise to us is that when we are merciful, that we in turn shall receive more mercy. I don't know about you. I know how much of a mess I am. I could use more mercy. And so the Lord said, be a people that are just so generous with the mercy you bestow on others. And it will come back to you. It will start a beautiful cycle of mercy received and mercy given out. Right? Who are the people in your life who need mercy from you today? They deserve the cold shoulder. They deserve for you not to call them back or reply to that text, 
or acknowledge something or attend something or, you know, any of those things. They just don't deserve it. But you know what? Man, I'm going to do it anyway, just to be merciful. And I'm not going to lord it over them. I'm not going to look for a compliment or a thank you. I'm just going to demonstrate mercy. And if I don't get it back, that's fine, because my source of mercy doesn't come from them. It comes from the Lord. I know who I am, and I know who I am apart from God, and I know who God has made me to be. And that's all I need for my identity. It's not wrapped up in how they respond to my mercy. My identity is wrapped up in my Father and how I rest in Him. And I'm going to take that, and I'm going to push mercy out to the world around me in a radical way that makes people think twice and ask questions. That's number one. Blessed are the merciful. Next. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, when Jesus came to earth, one of the kind of primary themes that we see in the Gospels and in Jesus' earthly ministry is how he rubs the Jewish leaders the wrong way. And the reason that he rubs the Jewish leaders the wrong way, there's a couple, right? One is he claims to be the king of the Jews. But one of the main reasons that he rubs the religious leadership the wrong way is through this kind of battle between internal and external. See, the Jews are really good at the external of their faith. They're really great at the ceremonial stuff, the things that people see them doing, the giving. You know, they would take their, their stuff and, and, and try to translate it into the smallest coins possible so that when they gave, they could heap the thing on, on the... And it would make a giant gong and a noise, right, when they would come and tithe as if they were giving massive amounts and they would try to be on display and everything they did. And so there's this heated exchange that we see at some point later in the Gospel of Matthew that shows up between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let's just look at it real quick. Woe to you, this is uh, Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and then the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He scolds the Pharisees because they are all about the external, but their heart is rotten to the core. Who they are when no one's looking doesn't, doesn't fit the bill, right? And Jesus comes in most of the teaching that he commits and the statements that he makes and the way that he tries to shape the people on earth is to get them to understand that it's so far less about the external appearance of how you act and so much more about the internal heart, right? That's why when they start to come at him with the law and things like that, he says, you know, you've heard it said that adultery is bad, but I tell you, even if you commit lust in your heart and you look at someone lustfully, you've already become an adulterer. The Pharisees are saying, look, we we keep ourselves pure from the ladies. And he's going, yeah, but when you look at him, what are you thinking about? Oh, that's part of the equation? Yeah, it is. The heart, the internal matters so much more than the external because from the heart everything else flows right and so the purity that God demands of us is primarily a purity of the heart right and he 
builds up against these Pharisees this case. He's saying, look, all you have is the external appearance, but yet you do not belong to me. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying, blessed are those who internally, inside, in their own hearts and minds, belong to God. Who are you when no one's looking? Do you come here and and give off a beautiful, godly persona to all of us? And people here have known you as a faithful Christian for years. Do you attend every event and Bible study? Do you always serve when you have an opportunity to serve and you make sure people can see it? Maybe you don't even do it intentionally. It's just a subconscious kind of thing. But what is your personal, unobserved relationship with God like? How do you connect to God if you do it all during the week when no one's watching? What are your thoughts when it comes to the Lord and how he calls you to see other people? If we could take your week when no one's looking and we could put it up on this screen and play it back for everybody to watch, how long would you stay in this room? Or how quickly would you, right? If I said, all right, so-and-so, here we go. Before I even hit play, most of you would be like halfway out the building. You'd be in your car and you would never come back to this church ever again. And that's not to make you feel guilty, but it's for us to understand the difference, right? Jesus wants the heart. He wants our heart. He doesn't want the external religious appearance for us to put on the show for all to see when they come here. Oh, how godly the Stowe Presbyterianites are. He wants our heart. Because Jesus knows that if he has that, the external stuff takes care of itself. Blessed are the pure in heart. And the promise that comes is that they shall see God. How many times do we walk through life and we feel like we have this this distance from the Lord? It doesn't feel like he's close. It doesn't feel like we can discern what his will is for our lives. What's he saying to me? What does he want me to do? I feel so far and distant, right? When we have a, a purity of heart, when we seek after the Lord in the quietness of our own lives, not for the showmanship of other people, God's promise to us is, you'll you'll see me. If you pursue me quietly on your own, when no one else is watching, just for your own heart's sake, not so anyone else sees, I'll be there. I'll show up. And you'll see me. You'll know me. You'll know me more deeply. You'll know me more intimately. You'll start to understand my will for your life. But to do that, you have to seek out a purity of heart. That's not something that people see. That is something that is internal within your own thing. And that when the Jews uh, and, and Gentile kind of stuff started to wage after Jesus' death and resurrection, right? one of the primary arguments that, that Peter makes is that, look, I, I'm starting to evangelize Gentiles, and the, the, the councils get together, and they're pounding him for it. He says, look, I, I, how do you know that they can be Christians too? Well, I, I've, I'm seeing the change in their heart. Like, clearly the Spirit is moving in the lives of the Gentiles because their hearts are transformed. You can, you can see it. Like, when you know someone whose heart is after God, not just their hands and their feet, you just know. Like, you can sense it in them. There is something about them that is so radically different, right? Think about it. Who are the people? Don't say this out loud. Who are the people you know in this church? They're like, man, I know their heart is just sought, sold out after the Lord. Right? I just know it. All I have to do is spend two minutes talking to them, and I just know it. That's what he's after. That's what God wants. Not the external stuff, but the purity of heart. Who you are when no one's watching. Third, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. This one is kind of straightforward, right? Those who are blessed are those who in this world seek there to be peace. And I'm not just talking about individual relationships, right? We seek peace within the relationships that we are in, whether it's in our households or our workplaces, our churches, our neighborhoods, our families, whatever. But we seek peace on a greater level. We seek peace on earth. We seek for peaceful ways to coexist. The church doesn't, in some ways, like we're soldiers for Christ, but we don't act militants to the world around us, right? Our weapon is love. Like when I say Christians go to war in the culture, you're not actually supposed to pick up bayonets and literally go pound the culture down, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Our weapon at the arsenal, at the disposal, is peace. And so we are to be a people that in every way, in every decision we make, in every relationship we encounter, in every conflict we're supposed to resolve, whether we're right or wrong or all these things, we're supposed to seek peace. Christians ought to be known in the world as the most peaceful people that have ever been. Right? If you're a Christian and there's non-Christians in your sphere of influence that are more peaceful than you, you've got work to do. But here's the key that this passage isn't explicit about, but scripture elsewhere is very explicit about. Peace never comes at the compromise of truth. It's something we see in this culture more and more within the church context. If you look at churches today, more and more of them are actually compromising truth for the sake of building up some kind of idea of peace. And so you have churches that look more like country clubs than churches because they just want the biggest tent pole possible and as many people in the tent as possible. But the pole itself isn't really centered on anything. Right? The tent pole is going to break because there's nothing that holds it together. What holds Christian unity together is this tent pole of truth. We never compromise truth to be peaceful. Right? And if you have to choose between being truthful and peaceful, you try to be as peaceful as possible, but you've got to speak the truth. And if someone wants to wage war with you because of that, well... So be it. We don't invite the conflict, but we don't shy away from it, right? We seek to be peaceful. So what that means is when our, our scripture, when the things that God says butt up against the thing the culture says, we have to stand true to what God says, but how we approach that is a whole different story, right? So pick your hot-button topic. Whatever is going on in the culture out there right now that God's word isn't, isn't okay with, right? that doesn't mean that you get to go out and be Bible-thumping and unhelpful and hateful and spiteful and belittling. Right? We go out understanding that every person and human has dignity because they are created by Christ with a, with a degree of worth the same as us. And so we, we take the truth of God and we try to think, how can I get this out into the world and how can I speak that truth in the most peaceful and loving and caring and compassionate way humanly possible? Sometimes it just won't work. Sometimes Peace is not graspable in this life because we live in a world of sin, but we are to try. Right? It means that we lay down our need for justice at times for the sake of peace. It means we lay down our need to always be right in conversations for the sake of peace. It means that we employ mercy when we want to employ vengeance in order to establish peace. 
And it means, more than anything, that we trust God to take care of us and that that's what enables us to lay our ammo down a little bit. Right? And four, this one kind of relates. Um, like I said, these Beatitudes like to build on each other. Right? The last one is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, number one, um, blessed, it's not blessed are those who persecuted, for those is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? Just because you're being persecuted doesn't mean you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sometimes you might be persecuted because you're just a jerk and you deserve it. Right? That doesn't mean every time <clears throat> someone's against you, you can say, oh, persecution, I'm blessed. No, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you live the way God calls you to, and when you are persecuted and hit as a target on your back for doing the things of God the way that God wants you to do them out in the world, and persecution comes as a result of that, blessed are you. And the promise that he gives you is the same as the promise of the first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. This is the only one that warrants a little bit more description. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? It's this elaboration. He goes, look, this is going to be a part of your life. Right? This final one just hits a little different. It's not so much something we are to do, but rather something that is done to us, right? I said that the last four Beatitudes are about horizontal relationships. The first three are how we act towards others. This last one is how we deal with others acting towards us. And the harsh truth that God wants to speak into your life is persecution is going to be a part of your life as a Christian. If we want a picture of, of what this looks like. He's saying when you pursue mercy, purity, and peace, it's not always going to go well. Jesus is the perfect example to look at. Jesus pursued the Beatitudes with absolute laser-focused precision and perfection. Jesus was perfectly meek, perfectly pure in heart, perfectly poor in spirits, perfectly everything. He was perfectly merciful. He, he was the perfect demonstration of God's peace on earth. And yet, he was brutally persecuted, even to the point of death. And he's warning us that a Christian's life as a Christian invites persecution from the world around us. Right? Now we know that there's people in, in the world that are persecuted, they're, they're dying for their faith, they're having their heads chopped off across the world. And, and what we shouldn't diminish in that, one of the things we're tempted to do is diminish our own persecution. We say, well, we have freedom. We're not that. Right? Hopefully no one here right now is afraid that they're, going to have, that they're going to be beheaded on the way out because they attend a church today. Right? But that doesn't diminish the reality that persecution is still very much a part of our experience and our life on a different scale. How many of you would argue that today we have less religious freedom than we did 50 years ago? Not just in this country. That's not a political statement. That's just the reality, Right? Politics play a role in why we might not have as much freedom. <clears throat> but that's true here. That's true in other countries. That's certainly true in, in places like Europe or even in Africa. We have less religious freedom and more religious persecution today than we did years ago. <clears throat> it's just reality. And, and I, and I got to tell you, I'm not, a, I'm not a pessimist or kind of a negative Nancy with this. But if we look at the trend, 
we kind of have every reason to believe that persecution for us is just going to get worse as the decade or two coming start to unfold. Right? It's just the nature of the beast. Right? Jesus is telling you this is coming. Right? His death on the cross was a forecast for us. The good news is his resurrection is a forecast for us as well. Right? And so he says, blessed are you. And, and the beautiful promise is this. For those of you who are going to suffer that persecution for righteousness' sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, on the other side of this persecution is, is a place where, where nothing but blessing comes. Like it's a temporary thing. You're not going to suffer persecution for eternity. And if you are, in fact, killed for your faith, if it gets to that final, ultimate, persecuted sacrifice, you're just going to be with me in heaven. And it's going to be your kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is for you. And blessed are you for that persecution that you've suffered because you've followed in Jesus Christ's footsteps. The final blessing is what enables all of the others. So if you show mercy and you're trampled on, if you pursue this purity of heart and you're mocked, you're spit on, you don't get ahead in the workplace for, for doing it, if you seek peace in the world instead chooses war against you, if you are beaten down even unto death for your pursuit of righteousness, the promise is that God has you and keeps you and invites you to inherit heaven and the kingdom that comes with it. And this is a really important thing for us to understand in the world we're in. I don't want to be a pessimist, but I really do think persecution is just increasing in our time. I think 10 years from now, you're going to be shocked at how hard it is to be a Christian in this country. And I actually think, you know, interesting enough, people say that over the last maybe 20 years or so that the church has dramatically shrunken. I actually am not convinced that's true. I don't think the church really shrunk. I think what happened is that 20, 30 years from now, being a Christian was a real convenient thing to be in this country. It was culturally normative. To be part of a church was the normal experience in your neighborhood. One of the first questions you were asked is, what church do you go to? Not, do you go to church, but what church do you go to? And if you didn't answer, you were looked at as weird. It was almost weird not to be a Christian in, in, in America 20, 30 years ago. And I think what happened is, over the years, churches haven't shrunk, but the people that are nominal in their faith, who were here just for their own sake when it started to become not advantageous to be here, they just stopped coming. The true church is as strong as it's ever been. Christianity on a global scale is actually growing. There are more Christians this year in the world than there were last year in the world. It's shifting geographically, right? In America, that's definitely not true. But on a global scale, Christianity is exploding. Thousands of people come to Christ in places in continents like Africa and Asia every single day. For every Christian we're losing in, in the Western world, we're gaining like five or six in, in other parts of the globe. Right? Christianity is exploding. God is up to something. But in a place like this, it's becoming less convenient to call yourself a follower of Christ. And so what? Less and less people do. Right? Or they're less committed in how often they're here. You know, the average church attendance for, for Christians now is two out of four Sundays. Persecution is part of life. If you signed up to be a follower of Christ thinking that God's just going to make all your problems go away, buckle in, because it's going to be a tough ride. Right? But blessed are those who the world goes after for righteousness' sake. Because no matter what they do to you, 
No matter what they say, no matter what freedoms they take away, no matter how hard they make it to gather on Sunday mornings and worship the God of the universe, no matter how hard it gets, ours is the kingdom of heaven. So bring it on. And if we shape our lives after the pattern of the Beatitudes, the promise of God is that blessed will you be. The kingdom will be yours. You will know me. You will see me. I will give you peace. I will give you comfort. I will be your God and you will be my people. So I want to challenge you. The Beatitudes, the more we look at them, they're almost like a manifesto of the Christian life, aren't they? They're a job description. It's a proclamation of the kingdom that we've signed up for, and it's a job description of the Christian. So the question is, are you going to accept the position as it's written? Or are we going to walk through life trying to modify it into what we want it to be? Right? What are you going to do when you're confronted with the reality that God says, look, to be a follower of Christ looks like this? Right? Well, I, I kind of want it to look like, I don't really care what you want it to look like. To be a follower of Christ looks like this. Anything short falls short. And he loves you and he cares about you and he bestows mercy on you each and every day. But you got to reckon with the fact that everything short of this falls short. And so our, our role as Christians is to pursue the Beatitudes with every fiber of our being. Right? To give it everything we have Not in a guilt way, not in a way that makes us go, if we fall short, we're not true Christians, or God must not love us or care about us. He loves you so much, he died on the cross to save you from all of the sins that you did, are, or could ever commit. He he redeems you, he pays for you, he bought you, he restores you, he gives you a clean heart, and then he tells you, hey, by the way, that clean heart I gave you, here is the manual on how you use it. Go. Get busy. Are we going to be a people that are guided by the Beatitudes Are we going to be a people that are guided by what the world tells us to live like? That's a decision that I can't make for you. I can only make for myself, and you have to make for yourself. What's it going to be? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We praise you for the fact that you sometimes just speak to us so clearly. Many of us are, are thinkers that want to look at Scripture and say, just tell us what to do. And so we praise you when you have passages like this that just tell us what to do. You said, look, you want to, you want to have a blessed life? Here's what it is. Lord, we pray that you would equip us to not just know this in our head, but to live it out in our hearts, in our minds, in our hands, in our feet. We pray that you would cause us to be a people that are poorer in spirit, people who mourn the way you call us to, people that are exemplifying of meekness and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities for mercy in this world to demonstrate it and that you would equip us and empower us to demonstrate mercy that we don't want to demonstrate for your own kingdom's sake. And we pray that our hearts would be staying pure, that in the quiet moments when no one's watching, that you would keep us by your Spirit's power in your fold and guide us towards your desires and your outcome. That we wouldn't stray from the path of righteousness, but that we would seek after you even when no one is looking at us. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities to be agents of peace, whether it's conflict at home, conflict at work, conflict in government and in our country, in our world, 
We pray that we would be peacemakers. We pray that you would give us creative ways in our own towns to let there be more peace exemplified. We pray for this church and this community that as people come to know it, that they would know it as a, as a hill on which peace is born. And Lord, we pray. We pray that when we were persecuted, that you would have us, that you would hold us in the palm of your hand. And we praise you, Father, that when we suffer, when we struggle, when we're put down for our faith, when our freedoms are restricted, whether they're restricted a little or a lot, we pray that we would know and be reminded of the fact that you suffered unto death, but you have risen in power, and you promise the same outcome to us. And so we pray for faithfulness when it's hardest, that by your Spirit you would remind us and empower us that death does not have the final word in our life, and that no matter what happens, the other side's coming, and it's beautiful, and it's your kingdom, and it's our promise to receive it. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, amen.